This podcast is supported by VEPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by Peter Jewell, and this is the Planning Exchange Podcast. Good morning and welcome to PX65. I'm Jess Noonan and as always I'm here with my co-host Peter Jewell. Today we're reaching across the globe and conducting our very first international interview with Scott, Scott Byer, an urban affairs analyst from New York City. Scott is the founder and owner of the Market Urbanism Report, a media organisation that promotes free market urban policy. The Market Urbanism Report publishes a weekly article a monthly podcast, and has active social media accounts with a combined following of over 50,000. Scott is also a journalist who recently completed a three-year, 30-city cross-country tour to study urban American issues. He now writes as a regular columnist for Forbes, Governing Magazine, HousingOnline.com, and the Independent Institute. Recently, he launched a consulting company, Biopolicy, to build political support around his ideas and which works with public and private institutes to spearhead pro-market, pro-growth policy in cities across America. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you for having me. Scott, what what is the background to market urbanism? So it's a larger movement. Uh, I was not the person who invented the market urbanism phrase. Uh, There was a blog that that had been around for about a decade and uh, called market urbanism. And it was uh, advocating for the idea of free market policy in cities. And I think from there, it's kind of uh, metastasized and many other people have used the market urbanism phrase. Uh, It's kind of like new urbanism in that respect in in the sense that it's not necessarily associated with one specific institution so much as new urbanism is kind of a common phrase at this point that a lot of people might use. And market urbanism is the same idea. Um, I started the, my later blog to try to, uh, to try to really grow the idea of market urbanism and make it more popular uh, nationally and globally. How does it distinguish from previous approaches to planning policy, Scott? Well, I, I think it's actually night and day. So I think the very idea of planning is oftentimes when people say urban planning, what they're often talking about is the idea of government planning um, and the idea that governments determine the layouts and the infrastructure and the growth pattern of a city. And market urbanism is coming in and saying the opposite, that governments should not plan cities, but that the market should plan cities. And so basically you you have thousands or millions of different consumers who all have their own desires and their consumer preferences. And they are able to live by the type of home that they want, where they want and get around in the way they want. And the private market will respond to those needs, whether it's developers or transportation companies. And so it's more of a bottom-up private actor type form of planning that is in contrast to pretty much how any city is run at at this point. So, Scott, you also wrote a piece on your blog on model zoning codes in the States. How, in your view, can zoning be reformed to better enable market outcomes? Yeah, so I think, I mean, and I, before I answer that, I should probably create a distinction also between different forms of market urbanism. So I think on one hand, market urbanism, the the theoretical model is basically saying, how would cities develop and function if they were completely private, if they did not have a public government at all, and they were basically just, you know, a group of private interests deciding how they wanted infrastructure to be laid out. And so that's kind of a, the reason I say that's theoretical is because it's very rare. That doesn't happen very much around the world. Um, You're not going to go into any country and see a huge number of cities that are privately planned. And so I think the, The other side of market urbanism that is not theoretical, is more pragmatic and politically possible, is the idea of having market-oriented reforms. So things that aren't full, like full libertarian or capitalism per se, but they're kind of pushing in that direction and they're they're representing a public-private form of planning that's actually like politically likely to pass. And so 
to answer your question about zoning specifically, I think that um, a market urbanist, some market urbanists might look at zoning and say, this form of land use regulation should not exist. Like we should not have regulations dictate policing things like use and density and aesthetics. But if that doesn't, if, if that proves politically unrealistic, then the next step is to have a form of zoning that is looser and more liberalized than our existing ones. And so an example of like a, a zoning that kind of pushes in the market urbanism direction would be something like form-based zoning, which basically says that rather than policing use or density, we just we may we may police certain design elements, but at the end of the day, people can place on their property whatever they want to place on it. So they can place retail with rooftop with rooftops overhead, or they can just build housing if they want to. But ultimately, it's their choice, um, and it's it's liberalizing the lot a little bit more. So Scott, this is a big challenge. This the whole concept that you're raising. Did that come out of academia? Did the you know the sort of neo, I'll call it neoliberal approach. I mean, I know in the in economics is the Chicago School. Where did market urbanism, you know, find its roots or start? Well, I think the I think the economic foundation would be classical liberalism. Uh, the economist Hayek, who wrote about a lot of you know like the uses of information in society and the way that you know, private sector outcomes often thrive on new information. And so they're able to adjust quickly based on consumer demand. Um, And just other classical liberal thinkers who are basically saying that private sector outcomes are more efficient and more responsive than public sector outcomes. Um, But I think beyond just the economic foundation, it would be it would just be a specific group of writers who not all of them were necessarily economists, uh, some of them were planners and real estate developers and journalists, but they all kind of like came to the conclusion that our existing planning paradigm was not responsive to people's needs. And so so they were viewing free market ideology as something that uh, would be more responsible and, and be able to empower different actors rather than just a few uh, through regulation. And Scott, what have city planners and administrators not learned from history? Well, I think they've, they have learned some things. So I think in the U.S., if you were to look at the, the history of planning, like a lot of, a lot of what ultimately caused the urban planning profession to be discredited was urban renewal, which I don't, I don't know if Australia had any, any similar uh, policy like that, but urban renewal was basically the act of wiping out urban neighborhoods uh, in, back in the 50s and 60s that had deemed to be you know, pre-modern and blighted and slum-like and shoving roads through those uh, neighborhoods and basically displacing a lot of people. And so this brought sprawl and auto-reliance and pollution into cities and kind of destroyed neighborhoods in the functional neighborhoods in the cities. And so that was thought of as, that was thought by urban planners back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s to be the default policy, like the best policy practice of that era. And now planners today look back on it and say that was a travesty. That was one of the worst domestic policies we've had of, of the 20th century. And so I think there's a lot of humility to answer your question, at least in the United States, I think there is there's more humility about what planners should be doing and are capable of doing. Um, and there's more of like an, uh, an embrace that things should be community oriented and incremental. So if you're, if you're asking for zoning changes, you should actually consult the community to see if they want those changes um, and not just make these huge kind of blunt top-down decisions. But I think that I think possibly a negative of that is that it's really hard to get anything done in cities because there might be certain economic policies that actually do need to happen. And there's no political justification or there's no like um, political momentum behind it because planners don't necessarily have the power that they used to. So it's kind of a it's kind of a um, 
you can view it in two separate ways. A, a couple of things, Scott. The, the, the urban renewal programs that you mentioned in the States, we also had them in Australia to a lesser extent. The inner cities, um, the, the slum clearance movement, and, and a lot of that was based on um, doing good for people and, and also getting rid of the slum culture. But that was a long time ago. What are the, what are the failings of modern planning policies, do you think? And I'm thinking like urban growth boundaries, um, the direction of concentrating densities in certain locations, the new urbanism. They, they're sort of the flavours of the month and walkable neighbourhoods and things like that. I know there's a lot in there, but maybe you can pick and pick a couple of those. Maybe the urban growth boundary. Now, you were asking what are the failings or what were the flavors? Uh, some of the, they seem to be very um, big parts of modern planning policy. Oh, oh. And what sort of, how are they failing such that there is the need for market urbanism or does market urbanism uh, sort of a better approaches to those those uh, objectives. Okay, yeah, I think that the where market urbanism, if I were to name a specific policy, where I feel like the planning world and really the government administration has failed in most U.S. cities, and where a free market approach would be su- superior, is specifically housing. Um, it's looking at things like zoning. And, you know, if you go if you go into San Francisco, for example, that's a really dense city that a lot of people want to live in. And there's there's very there's very acute demand pressures there. I mean, the median home price is something like one point one million in the city proper. It's just insane. And then so and so when you look at that and you say, well, the demand pressures are are very great. There is uh, a lot of people who want to live in in. in Located in San Francisco because that's where the jobs are. So why don't they build more housing um, and, and so that the price decreases a little bit? Well, they can't because of the zoning. Uh, three quarters of the city is zoned either single family or something very close to single family, like maybe duplexes and triplexes. And so a surprising amount of San Francisco is, um, you know, it's basically looking like typical American suburbia, actually. And that's kind of outdated when you consider all the demand pressures that exist there. So the planning approach is really the reason behind that. Uh, There's not, it's very hard for a developer to buy a lot, a single family lot and rezone it for dense multifamily, just because it's like, there's so much planning in place and they have to go through all this community review and like environmental review and design review, and there's all these different layers that make that rezoning process last like five or six years or longer. And I think where market urbanism comes in says, if you got rid of that, if you've got rid of that review process and basically just said, let this developer build on the land based on the market signals and the market demand, you'd have a lot more housing. And so you'd have a lot more, um, the prices would stabilize and ultimately decline in San Francisco and more people would be able to live there. So I think market urbanism above all is an answer to the housing shortages that have been created by restrictive zoning in a lot of U.S. cities. And it's basically just saying housing would be cheaper and denser and more socially desirable in many ways if it followed a free market. And Scott, how do you, how do you protect the character if if we move to a um, move to that approach? How do we how do we or how do the states protect their character, particularly in San Francisco, for example? How how would you see that working under that approach? Um, I'd say that the market urbanism approach does not does not really put much emphasis on character because we're looking at that as something that's subjective anyway. Um, there are now, there are certain, you know, like the painted ladies in San Francisco, that, that very nice little set of row homes that look out over the skyline, you know, there might be isolated examples of everybody can, everybody of any ideology can look at these specific buildings and say, these have historical merit and they should have some sort of preservation status. And so I think that there, you might have preservation policy that might be isolated to specific buildings. 
But I think the whole conversation about character has kind of been blown out of proportion in a place like San Francisco to the point that they're doing whole overlays of historic protection over entire neighborhoods. And so there will be all kinds of individual buildings in those neighborhoods that have no historic merit, but they're part of an overlay that is protected. And that's kind of like, I think that in my opinion, that's taking the concept of character way too far. Is there also an emphasis, and and I'm not familiar with how the states works in terms of planning policy, but is there an emphasis particularly in the city areas around architectural quality? In respect to the actual look of the architecture? Correct, yeah. Um, Yeah, I think, yes, there is. There is, uh, most cities have design review. Uh, So, you know, that's just, it's kind of like another layer in the planning process. I think when a when a uh, development is up for proposal, it'll go through through the planning commission, and the planning commission is often looking at things like traffic impacts and you know community impacts and, and impact on local infrastructure and schools. But then there's a completely separate review process called design review, and what that usually consists of is seven or eight different design architects, like design experts or architects. Sometimes you'll have architectural historians um, weighing in as well, and they are to decide whether or not the the building is of sufficient quality to get approval from an architectural perspective. And this would be another thing where, I don't know, I'm looking at this, my position on this type of thing is if you just let developers build to the high end of the market in many cases, the consumer demand that exists among millionaires might actually lead to better architectural processes than having eight different architects all argue over the same building. Because what we found in the case with a lot of design review is that when you have eight different architects on a board arguing about the quality of the architecture, they ultimately have to just agree on the lowest common denominator. Like they have to, they have to agree on things that all look safe enough for them. And so it's sort of like the really cutting edge designs get pushed to the wayside for something that's that, in my opinion, is more mediocre. Scott, the use of San Francisco as an example, and maybe the on the East Coast, New York, they're, they're not representative of American cities in, in general in terms of housing pressures, are they? Uh, what about the sort of mainstream America, if you like? Um, what are the... What are the big issues in city development there? Yeah, it's a, it's different in every market, and I've actually divided and divided it into three different categories. So I think on one hand you have some of the coastal metros that are really high ends, like New York and San Francisco. Uh, other ones are like DC and Seattle and Portland. Their biggest economic development challenges are the fact that they just have really high demands and they don't build a lot of housing, so the home prices there are very high. Um, and a lot of what you would call elastic sunbelt metros, it's, some, it's actually something like the opposite in the sense, uh, so places like Houston and Atlanta and Phoenix, Dallas, uh, they, have very, they have very fast demand pressures as well, but they also build a lot, particularly they, they build a lot of sprawl. And so they tend to be way cheaper, way, way, way cheaper, despite growing quite fast. Um, and so I, I view them in some ways as like models of how you grow fast, but still remain affordable. And then I'd, I'd say there's a third segment of cities that, um, that are usually in the northern part of the country, like the Midwest, the Rust Belt. So places like Pittsburgh and Detroit and St. Louis that are... They, they have a whole different set of challenges because they're actually depopulating and they don't have much demand. And so they're just trying to figure out like, what's the next big trick to make people want to live here? And how do we get new development? So, so there, it's not a homogenous um, situation. W- what about the criticism that a market urbanism approach might lead to chaos and big corporations might take over? Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't think the big corporation thing, when I 
to some degree, we already have a corporate takeover in the United States on all in all kinds of industries. It's like, you know, the mom and pop pharmacy is going out of business and being replaced by Walgreens. I guess I would look at I look at that as being a product of regulatory barriers. Um, you know, when in to speak about a specific industry that I know more about would be housing development. So if you're trying, if you're a developer who's trying to go into San Francisco and get a permit, if you're a large, sophisticated company that has lots of lawyers and lots of uh, budget to go through the planning process, you're going to be more likely to actually get something built than if you're just a mom and pop type developer that has a small portfolio, because the mom and pop developer doesn't necessarily have the money to go through the the multi-year planning process. So I'm looking at market urbanism. If you're having, if market urbanism is asking for a paradigm that has less regulation and less discretionary review for every single economic activity, it actually reduces the barriers for entry in any given industry. And And it enables more small entrepreneurs to jump in and compete with each other and have a more perfect setup for competition. Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. What about um, planners um, hate urban sprawl, um, Scott, and the, you know, one answer is the urban growth boundary. And I think Portland, Oregon has been very big on that. Have you got anything to say about, you know, market urbanism's sort of general reflections on suburban sprawl, which is a, it can be used in a a nasty descriptor and also the concept of urban growth boundaries? Well, I, I do agree that, uh, a lot of urbanists point point blank hate sprawl, and I think even a lot of a lot of market urbanists also have a very complicated relationship with sprawl. Um, I think where I would stand on it is, if sprawl is a market outcome, uh, then people should be able to live in sprawl. And so I'm I'm not I do not favor things like urban growth boundaries that make a very arbitrary cutoff on how far sprawl is allowed to go out. Um, I think. But I think the caveat that I would add to that is that in a lot of ways, all the sprawl that you see in the United States, I don't think there would be so much of it, so much of it if it weren't for very specific government policies that kind of like effectively forced it. I mean, we had, you know, we had mortgage policies back in the 50s that redlined certain urban neighborhoods, but then tried to encourage people to develop out in green fields. And so that that like was a subsidy that propped up the entire idea of sprawl. And then obviously we have like all kinds of subsidized roads that that induce sprawl. And we have all kinds of subsidized utilities that are extended out to create sprawl neighborhoods. So I think my position as a market urbanist would be, do I want to regulate sprawl? No, but but we also need to recognize how sprawl is not necessarily a market outcome. In a lot of cases, it's the product of a lot of government central planning and social engineering of infrastructure. Scott, how have you seen the impact of the disruptor economy in the States um, potentially impacting on sprawl? So I'm thinking, you know, e-scooters and um, drone delivery services, trackless trams and those sorts of things. Well, um, I think those are all different things. So I think the disruption industry could lead to actually a lot of urbanization. Uh, it, you know, like a lot of things like electronic scooters and bikes actually make urban living much easier. Because I think if you were to if you were to ask any urbanite what's the hardest thing about living in your city, at the top of anybody's list is going to be getting around. Uh, particularly if you have a bunch of those short trips that aren't necessarily covered by mass transit. So like if you were to look, if you live in New York City, for example, 
and you're trying to get from point A to point B within Brooklyn, it's actually pretty difficult because the trains and the buses don't necessarily cover every square foot of the borough. And so I think having, having these disruptive industries like moped share and bike share and scooter share and really available on every corner, ideally, enables you to make these kind of like, um, it, it increases your flexibility. Like you can make all these point A to point B trips that are kind of unorthodox, but they enable you just to like pick up a scooter at point A and drive it directly to point B and drop it off. And so, um, yeah, I think it makes urban living easier. Scott, I was in Nashville last year and they had a vote to ban e-scooters. I think they some lime looking things they had on the footpath and the local council there put it to vote and people I think voted against them. What, what, what's your reaction uh, to that? Yeah, it's kind of amazing. And I, I guess in those votes, the, you know, there might be a certain consumer market that isn't represented or did not, did not manage to go out and vote, I guess. But I mean, the way I'm looking at it is that if you have, if, if we have a, a situation in urban America where we can go outside of our door and have access to all these different micromobility companies, it becomes a game changer in how we get around. And so I'm very much of the mindset that we need to allow these industries and help them if they can actually manage to scale so that their services do become ubiquitous throughout cities, then I think that could really be great for the future of mobility. And it would it would potentially prevent us from having to be so car reliant. So I think that kind of like to expand on an earlier point, you know, why is why is the United States so automobile dependent and why are they so, um, why is our usage of things like mass transit and bicycles so, uh, so, so minimal? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with government policy. It's like the government decides to subsidize one thing and they decide to regulate other things and pass moratoriums on other things. And I think that really affects then how the consumer ends up having to behave. With uh, transport options, Scott, do you think um, the traditional approach has been mass transit? Do you think with these new disruptor um, models, there is alternatives to that government-supplied mass transit approach? Well, that could work either way. Um, I think in some cases it could it, it could in some contexts erase or, or reduce the need for mass transit. But it could also bolster it. I mean, a, a lot of the, a lot of the the existing problems, especially in a place like the United States, where things are generally spread out more, I think that uh, like first mile, last mile is a huge problem within transit planning. Like, you've got a good, you've got nice rail infrastructure. It goes through some of the major job nodes, but when somebody gets off, they might still be a half mile away from their final destination. And so that's where something like a scooter would really come in and be convenient if you could just have scooters outside the stations that help people complete that last mile. Milton Freeman believed that the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. How is the intellectual planning commons, and that's just an expression of ideas, made more healthy, do you think? By the ideas that are laying around? Yeah, if, if... People are aware of new concepts and, you know, like Mark and urbanism is one approach, but having lots of ideas around that uh, yeah, pro- yeah. promotes choice and, and promotes, you know, new thinking about issues. Well, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, I think that can't hurt to have those ideas lying around. The Now, the thing that I will respond to that, and this is, this is my experience talking to a lot of public officials and people who work within planning departments is in many cases, they do, they do have the good ideas. Like they, even if they're not full on market urbanists per se, you know, there will be some idea, there will be some idea overlap about things that we think need to happen in cities. Um, You know, like a lot of planners believe that we do need more density and we do need looser permitting and we do need, transportation alternatives besides just the automobile. But I think where that becomes less relevant, though, is ultimately they are answerable to the voting public. And so if the voting public does not want to change and and they have or they have 
say, a certain incentive to keep things the way they are, that I think a lot of planning staffers and even public officials are going to be at their mercy, you know, because they're just trying to stay elected. And, you know, even if they have a good idea that they've read about and that is in their arsenal, they're not necessarily going to going to go through with it unless it has public support. And so I think it's much more than just educating the planners and the politicians. It's also educating the larger public about the need to uh, have land use reform in the U.S. Scott, there, there are design competitions for new buildings. Why not competitions for new policy, new planning policy, new city um, policy? I'm all for it. I'm all for it. <laughs> and, and and how would you see that happening? Uh, I think I think we already do have competitions to some degree. I get emails every once in a while asking if I would join the competition. <laughs> we we do have that in the United States where they'll say things like, um, you know, what is your proposed like what is your proposed plan for rerouting the bus system in Indianapolis or something? Um, or you know, what is your what is your uh, proposed plan for rewriting the zoning code. So we do have those kinds of competitions and I'm, I'm all for them. I think they're a healthy way to peruse through ideas. And, and how do we deal with the risk adverseness to new ideas in planning policy? That's something you touched upon that city officials might have good ideas, but they're worried about what could happen at the ballot. Yeah. Some of it is risk aversion. I think the other big word here is incentives. So if, Let's let's go through uh, zoning, for example. So I think even though a lot of planners and politicians know that the zoning codes in their towns need to change if they want the housing to become more affordable, why do they not do it? Well, I think because the people who go to ballot boxes are oftentimes homeowners, and homeowners do not necessarily benefit from changing the zoning because if you have restrictive zoning that keeps the the housing supply artificially short, that benefits them because it inflates their home values. And it also just like, you know, if you're living in a city and it's kind of a lightly zoned city and you add a bunch of density, you might have to be dealing with more traffic and things like that. So I think if you're an existing homeowner in a city, you don't have the incentive, the monetary or lifestyle incentive to see the zoning change. And so when a politician proposes changing the zoning, you're going to come out and speak in your own interests. And so it's sort of like the incentive structure is not there uh, based on our existing political paradigm to actually change anything. Because it's kind of like the incumbents or the people who are the special interests or the entrenched interests benefit from the way that things are. And Scott, in the market urbanism approach, who speaks for the disenfranchised? So I'm thinking housing affordability and those sorts of things with that. Yeah. So I think that there are, there's a lot of people who have spoken on that type of thing. Um, I remember that one market urbanist was once making the point that the best, the best, uh, for example, like the best uh, way to prevent gentrification would be to actually upzone the rich white neighborhoods rather than the poor black neighborhoods. And so to, to bring a specific example, if you were to look at Manhattan, like a lot of the people who move to Manhattan who want to live there and say they're a transplant from elsewhere, they might actually be moving to a place like Harlem, which is predominantly black because it is, um, it's cheaper up there. And so whereas the transplant might want to actually live in a place like Soho or Chelsea, they can't afford to do that because it's too expensive. And so I think that uh, I think the market urbanism response there is if you just built housing where people actually want to live, then it'll cause, you know, it, it, it'll cause certain neighborhoods to be upzoned, but it might not be causing the African-American neighborhoods to be taking those impacts of development. And so I think that a lot of the market urbanism, a lot of market urbanism is premised around the idea that you just like if you loosen the regulations, it ends up leveling the playing fields for everybody. And it's not like certain people are getting impacted over other people. Scott, with the COVID crisis, is it the end of the central business district? And with the with people having FOGO, which is fear of going out 
as opposed to FOMO. Um, <laughs> how do you see all this unfolding? I mean, is it the end of the CBD? No, I don't believe so at all. Um, cities have survived pandemics before, and I believe they'll survive this pandemic. Uh, I, I don't know enough about, and I don't think any scientist really at this point knows when the absolute uh, peak of this crisis will happen, and maybe it already has happened. But I think in the time afterwards, when the pandemic has died down a little bit, people will go back to cities and CBDs for the same reason that they always have, which is people move to cities because they want jobs, they want amenities, they want social opportunities, and that's not going to go away. And so I think that once the health risks kind of wane, I think people will return to cities. And, and the interesting thing is that here in New York City, like the the death figures on a daily basis are still rather high, but even now, like even a month or two after the pandemic has just began, uh, real estate prices are already going up. So that kind of shows you that like people fled at first because they got very scared, but then when things kind of became more normal and, and the disease died down a little bit, people are already moving back and wanting to invest in New York real estate. So Scott, as a follow-on to that, obviously um, COVID has been or is being seen as being an opportunity um, for city design and development, you know, in terms of the way that we um, we structure our cities, the way that we design public open space and footpaths and what have you. How are you seeing the impact of COVID on design and development in cities? Well, one big, one big thing that I think this would be really cool, I think even if... And, and we're starting to see it happen in Europe and also to a lesser degree in the United States, would be the idea that if restaurants need to observe social distancing, but they also need to stay open and actually serve customers, then why don't we just move the seating outside and spread it out a little bit so that people are not indoors? You know, because the disease spreads more quickly indoors and it spreads more quickly when people are closer to each other. So why not reorient our public space, particularly on commercial thoroughfares, to make the seating outdoors and spread out a little bit more. And that would necessarily require removing some of the space that is now designated for the automobile. So on a lot of commercial districts, what they could do is they could remove the on-street parking spots and make that cafe space for restaurants. And so to answer your question, like that would be the best example that really jumps to my mind of how Design could change because I think what might happen if they were to, if cities were to experiment with that, is that even when COVID goes away, people might say, huh, this is kind of nice. Like one of our commercial districts isn't just being overrun by cars and parking, and we're actually like have, creating a nice little public space here. And so they might want to keep it permanent. Scott, a, a friend in the States manages a large company, and because of the COVID crisis, he's most of his employees are not required in the office, or sorry, can't be in the office, and they seem to be pretty happy. And he's running it about, he thinks when it gets back, about 30% only will be needed in the office. His floor space demands are dropping from 4,700 square feet to 2,100 square feet. Uh, less office space. And what, what he's talking about is bigger houses, less urban, more suburban, uh, and houses having a spare room like an office designated office room any any thoughts on the commercial office market and the implications yes so the larger even before the coronavirus the fastest growing share of commuting trips or, or commuting behaviors was actually people working from home so the amount of people taking mass like mass transit interestingly enough so Mass transit ridership has been declining, as have as has car use over the last, I think, decade in the United States. And the reason for that is more people are working from home. So this kind of thing was already happening. And I think we're just seeing sort of an accelerated process of it occurring with um, with because of COVID. Uh, one really, one really interesting real estate subset, besides just office space that I've that I'd like to really track in the next decade and see how it works would be co-working space. So if if the if the traditional office is dead or is dying, and 
you know, people, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to want to work from home because I think there's certain like clutter and lifestyle issues of, of people not wanting to necessarily work from home. And so they might find a third space where they can just get their own desk or their own cubicle. And that would be a co-working space. And so they're not, they're not necessarily meeting in person with other co-workers, but they're just having their own space within a, like a co-working office. And I think that's why you see like the co-working space genre is increasing a lot in the United States. And you're seeing like all these competitors to WeWork popping up because that seems to me like it would be a hot real estate trend that might grow significantly over the next decade. Scott, America is a country of 50 states, lots of variations for experimentation. What are the, and we've talked a little bit about this, the barriers to experimentation and secondly, what experiments over the past five years or present are of particular interest to you? Of the of the fifty states, and just the well, well, America's a laboratory. It said with you know fifty different states and lots of different local provisions, and there's there's lots of variation, lots of scope for experimentation. Right. What what's caught your interest in the last five years or so that Got it. that really excites you? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing there is the the demographic shifts that are taking place in the United States on a locational basis. So, and what's what's really happening is a lot of people from the north are moving into the south. Um, now, I I had mentioned earlier in the interview that the Sun Belt cities were growing a lot in the United States, places like Houston, Dallas, Atlanta, Miami, uh, Phoenix. Like those are some of our fastest growing metros. And a lot of what's going on there is people, people from the North are going to parts of the South because that were traditionally less developed uh, because they, I think they want warmer weather. And, but there's also other factors going on. A lot of those, a lot of those metros that I mentioned are more like open for business per se than a lot of the regulated areas of the Northern, of the Northern part of the country. So it's like the taxes are lower. Uh, the housing is cheaper because they build a lot more of it. Um, in an, another example, even, and this doesn't necessarily even have to do with weather, but like a lot of people from California are moving to Texas. And Texas actually has really terrible weather, depending on how you look at it, because it's really hot. But they're moving from California because the regulatory paradigm has made housing there so expensive that they're just kind of like escaping to to places where they can actually afford to have a decent house. Scott, when I was in the States, I saw a bumper sticker saying, when I was down the South, it said, um, you can say what you want about the South, but no one retires to the North. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. It's, it's the opposite. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I, I think another, that's that strikes me as somebody who would probably be living in Florida because another migration shift that you see a lot is New York to Florida. In Australia, Scott, it's the opposite. Our warm parts are to the north and our cold mm. parts to the south. So we have probably less dynamic than the... I think more people in the States move around more freely than they do in Australia. And, uh, Scott, it, it, the, the States... American society receives a lot of negative press, and unfortunately at the moment you've got riots going on, which is, which is mm. terrible. How do you react to you know criticisms of, of your society? Well, you know, I, I guess they're pretty valid in some respects, because if you're if all you're seeing on the news is is uh, great American cities getting burned and looted and the police aren't really like doing anything to stop it. I mean, I've seen that footage, too, from the United States. And so it does have a pretty bad reflection. Um, I, I think what I would say is probably that they might not be understanding the complicated racial history that exists in the United States. And so a lot of things like, I mean, the protests are about police brutality and, and the, the long history of police brutality by white officers against black civilians. And so that's, that's the type of thing where it's going to be hard to understand that if you're viewing it from outside the national boundaries and, and you're just seeing random rioting, but you don't necessarily know the background behind it. And Scott, at the same time, you, you know, you've sent... Um... You've sent us a new rocket to space that's privately 
built by you know by SpaceX. Um, yeah, it's a country of great dynamism and entrepreneurial spirit, and and also the variety of cultures in the states is uh, unbelievable in terms of the yeah. melting pot. Yeah, I mean, I you know I would encourage people from outside the U.S. to to recognize that the that the nation is great. I mean it. You know, even if you see a bad news story about riots on TV, that does that doesn't necessarily speak for the entire nation. I think my summary of the nation, as somebody who spent three years going around and and living in a lot of different cities and exploring it, is to your point, it's it really is a hundred different countries. You know, it's like Miami is the capital of Latin America, and a lot of people from from like a lot of rich people from throughout. South America move there because they think it's this great travel destination. And so when you walk through Miami, Spanish is the first language you hear on the streets. But if you go to uh, Appalachia, it's just a completely different culture. It's uh, it's old, it's older uh, Anglo-Saxon and, and various white ethnic generations that lived in that area. And it's just a completely different world from Miami. And I could give you like 50 other examples of how different parts of America feel completely different from each other. And it's, that's what makes it so interesting and diverse. Scott, I had the pleasure of being in the States on 4th of July last year. And mm. what, what I couldn't get over is we're not that patriotic in Australia. We, we, it's very low scale down, down here, but in the States where I was, everyone had a flag. Everyone was going yeah. crazy. And when you looked at the crowd, it was made up of, every every different nationality on, on the planet i was it was staggering yeah what part of uh the u.s was that uh, i was in uh, uh Asheville for J- july 4th which is i think north carolina yes yeah i mean i think there's a lot i think there's a lot to be grateful for and that's why people that's why people in the united states are like that because i think there's a lot to be a lot to be grateful uh, with about the country, you know, we've had a lot of economic prosperity. We're not a very old country. So we, we date back to 1776. And yet in these couple hundred years, we've managed to, to build this vast industrial society that has created prosperity and upward mobility for millions and millions of people. So, and, and of course, like there's a, there's a focus on personal liberty in this country and freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And so I, I do see it as a bastion of freedom and prosperity. And uh, I would say that's why, that's why you're seeing the patriotic displays that you were. Scott, this, uh, now this part of the podcast we call Podcast Extra, where we, okay. where we talk about um, what's, inspire, what's caught your notice, uh, books, movies, film, um, music, something that's inspired you lately. And it can be more than one. Does it have to be about urbanism? No, it doesn't have to be about urbanism. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let me give a let me give an unorthodox answer, but it, it would absolutely have to be the answer. I I could not think of any different one at this point, and that is uh, for the last month I have been doing a very comp. I've been working with a number of different graphic designers to do a very complicated rebrand of Market Urbanism Report, my company. So not only redesigning the website, but also the secondary marketing materials like the, the social media cover photos. And so I've this has forced me to really like dive into a subject that I didn't know much about, which was graphic design, website design, the history of graphic design, and like what are different movements that I could be kind of pulling ideas from. And so I learned about just all these different like art movements. Like for example, um, there was a Japanese art movement back in the eighties called city pop that focused on things like use of bright colors and kind of like urban, urban iconography and everything. And that ultimately got transported to Los Angeles in the United States and kind of like informed the history of postmodern art in Los Angeles. And so like a lot of the, a lot of the design ethos that we have here in the U.S. is from this obscure design movement out in Japan, and so I was learning all these little things like that. And I feel like I'm a, 
I'm a semi expert expert on uh, postmodern design at this point because I've kind of like dug deep and in, deep into it for a month, and now I'm ready to design my website based on those principles. Oh, we'll have a link to your website on ours, Scott. What, what about you, Jess? What's been in your world? Well, for, probably for, uh, along a similar vein would be um, PX or Planning Exchange is now um, moving into some merchandise. So I've been working on <laughs> some designs uh, for different types of merchandise, which um, listeners will hear and see more of shortly. Um, but going back to probably a recommendation from a couple of weeks ago, Pete, is my, my bread making that I've still been doing. Um, I've been experimenting a bit further with that. You know, adding different types of flour and different types of seeds and it's been really nice really a really relaxing kind of hobby to be doing um while still you know mostly in isolation how about you pete i'm besotted jess by um, a netflix series called Fauda, uh, f-a-u-d-a it's a israeli production and it's massively popular on both sides of the divide in uh, the middle east um, with israelis and uh, Palestinians, uh, and it shows the conflict uh, from both sides. And I don't think I've seen such a good series since The Wire, uh, which mm. was about Baltimore. Um, and, oh yeah, I'll have to watch that one. Yeah. I haven't even haven't heard of that one the, yet. The Wire, Jess. It's it's no no Fada. A Fada. It, it, <laughs> it's it's um, and it makes me want to go to Israel so much. But it's it's just it it gives a human dimension to, you know terrorists on one side and the anti-terrorism unit on the other but it's 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 just wonderful so i'd, I'd recommend that but uh, and also just my little seeds are growing that the seeds that i collected so hopefully i'll be doing some replanting uh, in the next couple of months scott it's been an, a total joy having you on our uh, little podcast and we're so grateful and it's wonderful to hear all the fresh ideas you've got and um th- thank you so much from down under and I hope you can come along to Australia at some stage and, and we, can, we can have you at a conference and, and meet you and, and show you our great country too. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'll, I'll let you know if I ever drop in. I'm, I'm sure I'll visit Australia at some point sooner than later. Thanks so much, Scott. And uh, thanks, Jess. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Pete. Thank you so much. <laughs>